Hello, and welcome to episode 145 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Vincent Schiraldi about his book, Mass Supervision. Vincent Schiraldi is the founder of the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice and the Justice Policy Institute, and has served as the Director of, the, of Juvenile Corrections in Washington, D.C., Commissioner of the New York Department of Probations, and Commissioner of the New York City Department of Corrections. He has been a Senior Research Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and co-founder of Columbia University's Justice Lab. He is currently Secretary of the Maryland Department of Juvenile Services, and this is his third visit to the Decarceration Nation podcast. He's here to discuss his new book, Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. Welcome back to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Vincent Schiraldi. Thanks for having me back on, Josh. My pleasure. This is your third visit, as I just mentioned. Instead of having you kind of repeat what I always do, which is your origin story, why don't you share something people might not know about you? Maybe that isn't even criminal justice related. Do you have like hobbies or anything you like to do? Or is there, you know. I don't really have a life outside criminal justice. That's my problem. I'm just Me too. Kind of a criminal justice nerd, right? <laughs> um, but I can tell you my origin story in probation, if you'd like to hear that. Which sure, is like that'll work. Of- yeah, that'll work. So I had, you know, I had worked, ran the juvenile system in Washington, D.C., for five years under Mayors Williams and and Mayor Fenty and was done. I was going to drop the mic, go back into the nonprofit world where I really had spent my whole career prior to D.C. Um, And I got recruited by the Bloomberg administration out of nowhere. I wasn't looking for a job. I was, you know, going back. And um, so I met with Mayor Bloomberg and it was kind of a, a super interesting interview. He had been getting some criticism for not hiring New Yorkers to run his departments. And here I was, as you can tell from my accent, born and raised in Brooklyn, went to Catholic high school in my neighborhood, went to, uh, you know, Catholic high school and State University of New York and uh, NYU. So he was very happy about my New York bona fides. And now it's time to talk about probation for a second. And he just takes this breath sort of looks away and says, so uh, tell me about probation. And it was like, you know, how fascinated am I to talk about reforming New York City's probation department? And he said, what do you think about it? And I said, well, not much. I think it's a poor service given to poor people. Most politicians don't care about it, don't know much about it. And he said, well, tell me more. Well, you know, what would you do? He said, well, let me let me put it to you this way. If this probation department didn't exist. And I came to you with $80 million and 80,000 troubled and troubling souls and said, do whatever you think you can to help folks turn their lives around, make the city safer, rehabilitate people. I'm pretty sure what you wouldn't do is run out and hire a thousand civil service protected bureaucrats to have them piss in a cup once a week and tell them to go forth and sin no more. He said, no, I wouldn't do that. I'm sure I wouldn't do that. And I said, well, I haven't been to your department, uh, so I'm not saying anything about you in particular, but I bet that's what you've got. And there were three um, uh, deputy mayors in the room, one of whom had been checking email the whole time. And he finally looked up at this moment and the mayor looked at them and they said, yeah, that's pretty much what we got. And and so, I, you know, and I, I want to give you that story, not just because you asked me for, you know, something interesting, but because I think that's what most politicians think about probation, which is kind of not at all. And then we started spitballing, we should privatize it, we should, you know, do this, we should do that. And and I said, okay, I can work here, because I didn't have an answer. But at least people were open to a discussion about it, that was outside the the box in, in ways that I think typically we don't do. I think typically our discussions about probation and parole are very, very tepid, if at all. You've actually worked for several different mayors. Uh, I've always kind of had this theory, especially in New York City. I'm also, as I think we've talked about before, from New York, although you can't tell from my voice, uh, Manhattan. Uh, I've always kind of assumed that you guys always had those suspect accents, you know? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean it's true. I, I everyone's like, you don't sound like you're from New York. I'm like, oh, you know, I can't have Born Roosevelt <laughs> Hospital. I don't know what to tell you. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, I've always kind of assumed that no mayor has a real chance to reform New York City, uh, in the way that they say they're going to, in terms of the police and you know all law enforcement functions, because in a lot of ways the police really run New York City. <laughs> And I don't know if I'm right about that or not, but have, you've been much more of an insider than I have. But I, I kind of feel like that's one. Of, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, I guess? Well, there definitely were little commissioners and big commissioners. Education and police were big commissioners. I'm going to guess you know what probation was. I was a <laughs> little commissioner. So I flew under the radar, which was actually not a bad thing when you're trying to make some profound criminal justice reforms especially in a city where there were lots and lots and stop, of fr stop and frisks, and there was a very sort of testosterone-driven approach. Um, I, I was able to have my uh, conversations with the mayor outside of major spotlight, and you know, we were able to get a lot of stuff done. We cut the number of people on probation. Violations dropped in half. Um, we increased sixfold the number of people who were getting early discharge. So we were able to move the ball, not as much as I suggest in the book, but way more than nothing. So I feel like I've got to ask you this question, even though we mostly want to talk about your book and we've already gotten into parole and probation to some extent. But I have to ask, at least for a very short period at the end of the last uh, New York mayor's uh, uh, term, you were the director of corrections in New York City. You know, Rikers, obviously one of the most notorious uh, jails in the United States in a lot of ways. You know, is there, can you summarize kind of your takeaway from that experience and what you think the prospects are or what, how you think things could get better or if they're going to get worse? Yeah, I mean, I would call it heartbreaking. It was seven months. It was the last seven months of Mayor de Blasio's administration, uh, and it was the peak of the Omicron variant uh, of COVID. Uh, staff were calling in sick by the droves. Uh, it was on weekends, especially long weekends. We had about a third of my staff not coming to work. Uh, so that meant that uh, at those times and other times as well, there were whole living units with no correctional officer on them. So you got 50 guys sleeping on uh, beds in a, in a day room, essentially, in a big dorm room. And uh, every pillow, every mattress you pick up has a shank under it, uh, you know, homemade knife, because you'd have a shank in that room. And I, a couple of times the guys were standing right next to their beds when I picked up their pillows. And they said, yo, man, give me a CO. I'll give you my shank. Until then, I got to protect myself. And that means no fistfights, right? There's, there's only knife fights because you don't want to be the last guy to pull your knife. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was that kind of terrible. Staff morale was through the floor. We had dozens and dozens and dozens of people working triple shifts, exhausted at work, falling asleep, sometimes walking off in the middle of their shift saying, I cannot responsibly do this job right now because I'm too tired. And in situations like that, you know, they had added 14,000 cameras to Rikers Island uh, because of a lawsuit that was had been going on for several years before I got there. And so you got to see everything and you got to see people choke on an orange and die because there was no CO there. And the person in the bubble wouldn't let them out because, you know, they were banging on the door saying, we need a, do we need a doctor, we need a nurse to, to help this guy. Uh, and didn't didn't decide to let them out till the guy died. Or another time when somebody smoked what was probably a mailed envelope soaked in some drug and overdosed and died again while incarcerated people were trying to revive them. And there was no correctional officer there to sort of take charge and get the medical help. So um, so it was it was it was really kind of beyond heartbreaking. The advocates and the the correctional officers hated each other. And so there was very little opportunity for middle ground. Um, and each thought they had to fight as hard as they could and pull as hard as they could in different directions in order to move the ball uh, the way they wanted the ball to move, as opposed to kind of getting together and saying, you don't want to be unsafe at work. 
we don't want incarcerated people to be unsafe. How can we can we figure this out? That wasn't happening. And in my little seven months, I really couldn't make it happen. Although we did do one thing that if you want, I can describe to you that, that gave me some hope. Sure. Yeah. We, we brought on a couple of consultants who had had previously worked for the Vera Institute of Justice that were focused on young adults, not juveniles, but young people in prisons. And we sat them down with the uh, uh, incarcerated young people and the staff. We had hoped to do it together. They hated each other so much. There was no way they would do it together. So we said, all right, we'll do it separate. It's okay. You guys, we want to design what a safe unit should look like like and a decent unit should look like and at that time there were 400 and there were over 400 stabbings and slashings in rikers that year and violence on the adolescent unit which was 18 to 21 year olds was three times higher than it was in the rest of rikers so it was three times a very violent place and so except the young people we sat with the staff we wanted to pull the staff out and have them sit in a conference room and go through a powerpoint but we had so few staff that we couldn't do that so we ended up bringing PowerPoint on blown up boards onto the unit. And even though people said they didn't want to work with each other, you bring a bunch of PowerPoint slides onto a unit, everybody gravitates around them. And eventually they started planning this unit together. It was very program heavy. It was very restorative practices heavy. Instead of stabbing, you use your words, things like that. Uh, we physically painted it, brought people in from the outside. A lot of religious people came in, community. And... Uh, no violence, uh, you know, ran for four months while I was still there. No no assaults on staff, no fights. We found one shank. And I remember the day that happened, a warden called me up and she said, um, we are, uh, uh, you know, we found a shank. She was very, very nervous that I was going to cancel the program. But she said two things happened once we found it that never happened before. We had a big circle, all the staff, all the young people were talking it through. The young person who shank it was confessed. That's number one. And number two, he apologized. And then the rest of the uh, the rest of the, the conversation was about whether he should stay on the unit or not. Uh, he said, you know, I just re really didn't believe that you didn't need a shank to be in here. So I had one and I apologized and they kept him on the unit. So my hope was to kind of expand that to the rest of that particular jail and then to all of the jails on Rikers Island. But I only got my seven months, so I didn't get to do that. Well, one of the, you know, interesting things or not interesting, but uh, I guess complicated or terrible would probably be the way I'd really say it. Things going on right now is we actually have a national correctional officer, officer shortage. Almost every state I know of is drastically short of correctional officers. And most prisons, not just jails, are overcrowded and understaffed. Uh, it seems to me, and you kind of made a suggestion of this a little bit, that there should be a conflation of interests between the correctional officers whose lives get put more and more at risk the more overcrowded a prison is, and the incarcerated people and advocates. And it feels like there should be, we should be working together to do something about this. You know, my personal feeling is decarceration is the natural answer, uh, especially of elderly and people on short sentences. Uh, I don't know. Do, do, do you think there's a possibility? I know we have, like you said, there's a lot of tension between these groups, but it really does seem like the interests right now converge in ways that should be politically interesting at the very least. Yeah. And, you know, Andy Potter's done some good work in that. Has he been on the incarceration nation? Yeah. No. He's a, a former or current president of the Michigan prison guards union. Yeah. I've also... met with him. I've met with him once before. Yeah. Yeah, interesting guy. And, you know, he tried to help me with the guards union, with the correctional officers union in Rikers. It it didn't pan out. But uh, that doesn't mean just because it doesn't work in one place, it can't work elsewhere. I think there should be some room for common ground. With a shortage of COs, you would think that arguments for population reduction, especially around the edges, like you just talked about, I would add technical probation and parole violations to that, like at a time when you don't have enough staff to watch people detained on murder charges and robbery charges, you sure shouldn't be bringing people in or missing appointments and staying out past curfew. Um, but uh, but 
uh, and I wonder if there is some some room to have that conversation. But I'm not really in the advocacy community anymore. But I would I would hope, or important, or any adult corrections community anymore. So, but I would I would hope that you know we were on a good roll there prior to the pandemic. Population was coming down. It was this notion of bipartisanship around this issue. I always wondered if that was a mile wide and an inch deep, and it's seeming a little that way right now. But if crime goes down again, which it's starting to tick down in lots of cities, um, we might be able to get back on that road again. You know, unlike the way it was for much of my career in the 80s and 90s, because I mean, I've been in this 43 years now, unlike what it was like back then, there's way more people interested. I, mean, I was the weird dad when my kids were in high school that worked with criminals. Now I'm the cool dad. And those those teenagers are sending me their resumes because they want a job in mass incarceration. And I say that partly jokingly, but the young generation is way more interested in solving this problem than my generation was when we were their age. Philanthropy is way more interested in funding it. You know, we were often one national foundation. You had the McConnell Clark, Jet Foundation, Soros Foundation. When those folks started up, they were alone on the national scene funding in this. And funding doesn't make you smarter, but if you're smart, funding sure does help you be able to get your message out. So I think there's a lot of good stuff going on, but we're still, in, you know, we're, we're not done with mass incarceration. We're not done with mass supervision. So you talked a little earlier about your discussion with Mayor Bloomberg and coming up with this hypothetical, what would you do if you had this situation? Well, at one point in time, that wasn't a hypothetical and someone was doing that. Uh, and yet we ended up with supervision. So how did that happen? Can you share some of the story? I know it's a, a whole bunch of your book and you, I don't want you to have to spend you know an hour talking about it, but can you summarize kind of how we got to the point where, you know, for lack of a better term, trail them, jail them, and nail them is, I mean, nail them and jail them is the, 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 the norm rather than the exception. Sure. So probation and parole both start in the 1840s. Probation in Boston, a shoemaker named John Augustus starts to bail people out, keep them out of the brutal house of correction in Boston, um, and is wildly successful. He bails out 2,000 people, a handful of them don't complete probation successfully. He brings a bunch of his temperance movement buddies to help him, and it's a totally volunteer project. Uh, meanwhile, over in Australia, Alexander McConaughey is running the Norfolk Prison, and uh, it's a terrible, brutal place, and he starts to encourage people to behave well, participate in programs, and if they do, he lets them out early, he calls it ticket of leave, and they're not out completely free. They're conditionally released. And again, there's a bunch of voluntary parole officers who supervise them in the community. This is also happening simultaneously in France. France's term for this process is the one that ends up sticking. Uh, the word parole is the French word for word. You give your word when you leave uh, that you'll behave. And so at first, again, it's voluntary. It, it bits and snatches. It's starting here and there in different states. New York launches it first uh, at um, Elmira Penitentiary. A warden named Zebulon Brockway starts it. And for years and years, it's voluntary. It starts to get government funded, but still it's kind of based on these notions of rehabilitation, helping people. If you read the two leading uh, decisions, Gagnon and Morrissey, about what uh, rights people on probation and parole do and don't have. They are replete with the word friendly. I kid you not. This is supposed to be a friendly interaction. Yeah, occasionally someone will get in prison for a revocation, but really this is about not putting people in prison and jail and helping them survive. I mean, that's literally the basis of the two leading decisions today that were, you know, in the 1970s, right, right before um, Martinson writes his famous paper saying that uh, uh, rehabilitation doesn't work. Nothing works when it comes to rehabilitating people right before Richard Nixon declares a war on drugs and the prison population starts to grow every single year from 1972 to 2007. So 
just as we're about to launch this massive increase, eightfold increase in number of people in prison, fivefold increase in number of people on probation and parole, the Supreme Court saying it's friendly. Don't worry about those messy due process protections, because why would you want to put the courts in between you and your friend who's only looking through your underwear drawer to help you, not to sort of violate you and imprison you? And that just stays. Those are, if you go to a, a revocation hearing today, it's called a Gagnon hearing. It's called a Morrissey hearing on, on parole, Gagnon's probation. So, you know, this crazy pivot then occurs. And, you know, if if rehabilitation's dead, at least prison wardens and prison commissioners have something to back fall back on. Their punishment, their incapacitation. What does probation and parole have? All we were was supposed to be rehabilitation. And so the field pivoted. We started calling ourselves community corrections. We started wearing flak jackets. We started arming ourselves. We started increasing the number of conditions people have, whether they did or did not relate to public safety or rehabilitation. And we developed a, a hair trigger back to incarceration. It really is a gigantic leap because I, I remember in the book I'm reading and you're talking about this concept of the next friend. And I'm like, wow, that sounds lovely. <laughs> so yeah, Over and over and over, they use the word friend, including yeah. Alexander McConaughey when he invents it. He's, he's saying, you know, people were worried. Why should you have to be supervised after you come out of prison? And they said, no, no, don't worry. Let's get friendly people to do it. Yeah. And, you know, to keep this pattern going. Uh, you know, how did we get from where supervision, you know, we talked about this a little bit, is about rehabilitation, trying to help people reenter society uh, smoothly, and where we decided to charge people who don't have jobs or housing, criminal justice debt for the privilege of being supervised. I mean, I have been out for 10 years, a little over 10 years, and I'm still paying off my debt for two years on an ankle monitor. <laughs> so, you know, there's also that level too, right? Wow, that's interesting. So again, let's go back to the 70s for a second. You know, so at the beginning of mass incarceration, it you know was part and parcel of the Southern strategy, the Republicans, Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, and Ehrlichman and Haldeman, I quote them in the book, talk about how this was absolutely a lie. <laughs> this was absolutely a lie to criminalize black people and hippies because the silent majority was afraid. And, you know, I grew up in blue collar Brooklyn, and I can tell you my parents' generation were afraid. They were discombobulated. I remember when my brother came home from college with long hair. It freaked everybody out, right? So, so this wasn't just on TV. This was happening in living rooms where families were arguing over the Vietnam War and civil rights. And Nixon tapped into that. He said, if we can dog whistle uh, uh uh, foment fear around race and poverty and crime, we're going to peel off reliably Democratic voters from the South, from blue-collar populations, and from the suburbs. And it worked like a charm. I mean, the the the, uh, the Republicans have owned the South ever since and, and are battling as today over suburbs and blue-collar workers. So at the same time as that's happening, there's also obviously uh, a lot of social factors going on. One of them is political, and it's tax cuts and and you know withdrawing help from the poor. And the other is the outsourcing of blue collar jobs overseas. And these are the kinds of jobs that 18 year old young men who are kind of peaking on crime, right, uh, could could get with a high school diploma, not even a high school diploma, that could help them start families and start to occupy adult roles. So when I went, I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood in Brooklyn, there were three factories on my block. And when I went to college, a whole bunch of my buddies got jobs in those factories. And by the time I graduated from colleges, college, they had apartments, they owned cars, they were starting families. And, uh, you know, I was just starting out. So um, that went away. That's obviously not true. Nobody could live in my neighborhood, Greenpoint, Brooklyn, for the amount of money <laughs> that you could earn with a high school diploma. Yeah, the neighborhood that I used to live in, uh, when we lived there, it was, you know, basically, you know, poor people. And now you couldn't even get on the block unless you had a million dollars. You know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. 
That's right. These have these little these houses built for blue collar workers, right? They're row houses, smack, 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 factory. I mean, it was like perfect bar on the corner, right? Like it was like exactly what you need to make blue collar people happy. And it made my neighborhood very happy. So, you know, at that time, now you're a probation commissioner and the message is clear. I don't really care about what you do. I just don't want any Willie Hortons. I just don't want you to take a chance on somebody and have them blow up on me. Uh, and then, so that message gets sent to us probation commissioners who in turn send it down the chain all the way to the front uh, frontline staff, probation officers. To the point where when I start in New York City in 2010, I do a 19 person listening tour. And the fear was palpable in those listening tours. At first, everybody was looking at their shoes. Nobody wanted to talk. And then, you know, when I finally did get people talking, they were saying things like, we practice fear probation here. The only time we ever hear from our central office is when we mess up and then we are humiliated. We're transferred from desirable locations to ones that are far for us to to travel to. So if you live on Long Island, you're going to go to the Staten Island office. If you live in the Bronx, you're going to go to Queens. All these these uh, these hassle ways that us bureaucracies have of letting people know how we feel about them. And so, you know, people were saying we we practice fear probation. We most of us who are black and Latino incarcerate mostly black and Latino people on probation because you'll throw us under the bus if we don't. And that evolved. That was it probably was friendlier in the early 1970s when those two Supreme Court decisions came down and it became more and more, uh, more and more rule focused, surveillance focused, managerial. But the the, the element of charging folks for the where, where did that develop? Char oh, char I'm sorry. No problem. That I was a great story. <laughs> yeah, it was a good story. So at this time, right, when we're cutting taxes and, and being stingier with the poor uh, and more punitive, we certainly don't want to pay for it, right? We don't want to raise taxes to pay for prisons and probation services. We don't want to, uh, you know, cut schools or not fill the potholes on Main Street so we can you know, provide probation services. So initially, uh, departments start to charge people under supervision. Uh, eventually, somebody figures out, well, if government agencies can charge for this, private companies ought to be able to run it as well. And so private companies start to pop up all over the South, mostly for people on misdemeanor probation, because uh, the state would pay for uh, state probation, but misdemeanor probation had to be paid for by the local cities and counties. So people started to go to, you know, county administrators and say, you guys are paying for a probation department. I'll do it for free. Just just dump your probation department. My company will come in and we'll, we won't charge you anything. In fact, we'll kick you a little money back uh, and we'll supervise all the people on probation uh, for a fee. We'll charge what we call user fees to the people on probation. And so then what you have is you have people sometimes getting on probation because they were already too poor to pay some traffic fine. So me and you go into court. Josh, you can pay your fine. So you walk out of court that day. I can't pay my fine because I just lost my job. So the judge says, that's okay. We'll put you on a payment plan. We'll put you on probation. This private guy over here will supervise you. I have to pay this private guy. Private guy starts to add stuff on like urine testing, even though none of it had to do with me being a drug addict or alcoholic electronic monitoring, even though that wasn't ordered. And now the fees are really stacking up. So we got this one guy that we talk about in the book, Thomas Barrett, who was a, a former um, uh, pharmacist, got addicted to drugs, lost his job, lost his pharmacy license, lost his family, becomes an alcoholic, living in a $25 apartment a month, uh, and uh, steals a can of beer, $2 can of beer. Goes to court, can't pay the fine. They put him on probation, starts to rack up probation fees, late fees. They do test him for drugs. They do put him on electronic monitoring. He can't pay for any of that. Selling blood to be able to pay his fees uh, and skipping meals. And when you skip meals, you get weak. 
So he's unable to sell blood. Finally, it just becomes too much. He's about $1,000 in arrear. Tells the probation folks, I can't pay this. And they jail him for a year for a $2 can of beer. No new crimes. Wow. I mean, I've heard stories uh, like that, you know, and, and experienced some things like that. But that one in particular, I mean, $2 beer and you're years later still in the, the grip of the system. Uh, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, and I think it's important, you know, kind of like the, in a way, the beating heart of all the stories on this podcast and everything that we talk about is this kind of, it was one of the first things I ever talked about on the podcast is this notion that inequality uh, and disparity is at the heart of, of our criminal justice system. Uh, and you do, there's, you, you you know, pretty much a full chapter just talking about that. Do you want to kind of talk a little bit about uh, what what you're talking about there? Yeah, so, you know, you think about probation and parole, their job is to make this, it's really kind of, they were invented to mitigate the harm from corrections. And so that means they're they're invented to help people turn their lives around in ways that maybe correction systems won't, or maybe correction systems even make them worse. Uh, They're there to uh, divert people from incarceration and really to kind of curb the worst aspects of the system. And one of the worst aspects of our system is racial disparities and racism attached to the system. Um, Instead, what we found is that they're exacerbating that. Interestingly, um, the the disparities of uh, probation and parole aren't as bad as the disparities of the correction system. It's a a lower, it's still a high disparity, it's just lower than what you find in prison, for example. And theorists say that that is probably because for some people, it is truly an alternative for people with, you know, lawyers with money, uh, uh, middle-class people who are disproportionately white, they're getting the Hunter Biden treatment, or at least what some people believe was the Hunter Biden treatment, which is it's actually diverting you from incarceration. But for black and brown folks, it's more likely, and for poor folks, to be an add-on, and that instead of freedom, you're getting probation not instead of incarceration, you're getting it. And then once on it, people of color tend to live in communities that are much more heavily policed. And so, you know, if you're a white kid in the suburbs, you're smoking dope in the basement. If you're a black kid, you're doing it on the stoop and the cops can roust you for that and violate you for that. Uh, Black people, particularly, there's good data, bad data, if you will, on uh, on, uh, uh, the impact of the system on them. So at its peak, one out of 12 black men in America was on probation. One out of 12 black men in America was on probation. At the same time, one in three black men had a felony record. So one of the standard conditions is you can't associate with someone else with a felony record. So how are those one out of 12 going to avoid that one out of three? And like, I've been speaking a lot about this, Josh, you know, uh, this, you know, I wrote the book, but before that, I was teaching classes on probation and parole. I was writing papers on it. And one panel I was on, it was a guy from the Fortune Society sitting next to me. And he was living in a homeless hotel at the time, a homeless shelter, uh, even though his mother had a bedroom for him, empty bedroom for him, but she had a felony conviction. So his PO wouldn't let him go home. I met another guy on another panel who married a woman with a felony conviction, no new crimes now, right? And he was on parole and he got locked up for a year for doing that, came out a year later and had a wedding celebration and his PO came. He said, I had to actually keep my family off of my PO because they were so furious about it. So, uh, so I mean, and I guess, you know, one of the, the stories we talk about in the book is um, uh, Kerry Lathan. Guy comes out of prison in California. Uh, he's out for a few months. Uh, his sister, while he was locked up, got a donation of clothing from Nipsey Hussle's uh, marathon clothing store. Hussle was a, a musician and, and activist uh, who had formerly been a gang member. So uh, Kerry's going to a funeral for a friend, and he and his nephew go. They say, let's let's buy a new shirt for you at Nipsey's store, so you can kind of you know do some business with the guy that donated you a bunch of clothes. As it turns out, he shows up. Nipsey hustles there, big crowd around him because he's you know sort of a local hero in South Central LA, and you know is well known musician. 
uh, at that moment, somebody shoots and kills Nipsey Hussle, and Kerry Lathan gets shot in the crowd alongside him uh, and, and goes to L.A. General, you know, gets operated on, is, is convalescing. And instead of calling up and saying, hey, how you doing? His parole officer calls him up and violates him on parole, puts him in his wheelchair, takes him to L.A. Central Jail uh, for associating with a known gang member, Nipsey Hussle. At the same time, President Obama and Mayor Garcetti are lauding Hussle's life. 20,000 people are filling a stadium in Los Angeles to, to hear about and praise this guy's life. This is when the country's cameras are focused on on this, that this guy gets this, this technical violation that only ended when there was a lot of uproar. So it, it's just an incredibly common thing for kind of risk averse, some of whom are probably just doing their jobs, some of whom are mean, sadistic bastards, uh, violating people and sending them back to prison. You mentioned in their uh, conditions, and I think that, you know, for all of us who've been on supervision, one of the things that's constantly, uh, un well, infuriating is one way to put it, is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of science behind the conditions at all, much in the same way that sentences are largely made up, sentence lengths are largely made up. It seems like a lot of these conditions have nothing to do with actual recidivism, but all of them can get you put back in prison or jail. So what's kind of the story with conditions? Is there any basis for, you know, why we have those conditions or, you know, why, why do we use that system or do you even know? <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's, you know, it's, it's folklore. Um, you know, it's uh, what do you think? What do you think of work? I mean, some conditions are essentially be good. Don't engage in behaviors that are harmful. Like really that general. So you could drive a truck through these things, but yes, yeah, things like you can't, Travel out of the county. Um, I was on a podcast last week, uh, which I, I won't mention because you know it's competition. I don't want you to be, you know. Oh no, I don't look at any anyone in the thing as competition. I try to no, no. lift everybody up. So if it's yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. It's, it was code switch, right? And and Gene, the 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 interviewer, started off telling a story about him and his cousin in Philadelphia driving over to Camden, New Jersey to get some sneakers at a discount sneaker store. And uh, and then when they came back, his cousin remembered uh, that they were on probation and said, oh my goodness, I, I literally just violated probation and was kind of sick to their stomach for a few days because they didn't know, you know, did, did that camera take my picture? Did anybody see me? Am I gonna, am I gonna get in trouble? So, you know, we, we we kind of made these things up over time. Yeah, I guess it makes some sense not to associate with bad characters in a society with mass incarceration is a felony conviction. Define that. There's probably a bad characters without felony convictions, plenty of good people with felony convictions. I mean, and, I, you know, know, how, I had a mentor who had done time and yeah. the whole they had gotten me through, like they'd been successful on the outside. They'd come back, reintegrate all that stuff. And they helped me basically get through all the prison. I could write them back and forth when I was in prison. But the minute I got out, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't associate with them. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. it's the person who literally got me through it is doing really well on the outside. They can't talk to me at all. You know? Yeah. And how about the guy's wife or the guy's mother? Like you can't, you can't go to, to, to see your mother. So you know, one guy, I'll give you another story. Uh, there was a, a nonprofit in San Francisco, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in New York City, that their job was to get people jobs when they came out of prison. They had all sorts of contracts and foundation money. And uh, they did a, a random uh, a controlled trial uh, for people who got their service and didn't get their service to see whether it made a difference. And um, they were successful in getting people jobs and, and those people retaining those jobs and it reduced recidivism. But the people in the control and study groups were going to prison at the same level. And the, the executive director there had heard me speak about technical violations and was trying to explain this to their board and wanted me to come to a board meeting to explain it to them because they really kind of weren't believing what he was saying. And so I came spoke and told them all about, you know, how you can actually get locked up for a whole bunch of things that aren't real crimes, 
even if you're crime-free, which is exactly what we want parole to do with you, um, and even if you're working, which is exactly what your nonprofit's supposed to do. So I, I give him this whole explanation. It was all fine. Then there's a guy there from their nonprofit who was a, a client who tells his story. His story is, comes out of prison. This nonprofit finds him a job. Uh, it's a good job. It's a tech job and uh, and better, much better than minimum wage, but it's at night. So he goes to his PO who referred him to this nonprofit and says, can I do this job? PO says, yes. Doesn't put it into the computer, doesn't ask for the proper permissions because it would take too long and the guy wouldn't get the job. Really, by the time he would get that permission, that job would have flown. So the PO just says, yeah, don't worry about it. I got you. That PO goes away, another PO comes. That PO says, okay. Third PO says, okay, this is all in 18 months. Fourth PO comes on. They don't even talk to him. They just go knock on his door at 7.30 at night. He's not home. Ask for a warrant. Cops pick him up. And he goes to Rikers for six weeks, uh, by which time it you know, takes for them to figure out uh, this guy was actually working and, and he really kind of was given permission to be out at night. He said, when I went in, I had a job, a car, an apartment. And a girlfriend. Six weeks later, I came out. All of that was gone. I had to start all over again. Ooh. And I think people don't understand how much this contributes to mass incarceration. I think in the book, you say that 45% of the people entering prisons were there having, have, having had their parole or probation revoked. Is that the right figure? 45%. And that includes for new arrests, 25% for pure technicals. It's about three, almost $3 billion a year spent on that. You think about it now, it's 25% of people entering the world's largest correctional system. So it's not 25% of Norway. It's 25% of the United States. One part of the book that, I mean, really blew my mind was the couple of examples you gave of where public safety in got better even despite drastically reduced or actually non-existent supervision. Uh, first in New York from 1991 to 2021, the population under supervision dropped 85%. And during that same period, violent crime dropped about 76%. Uh, do you have a theory of what happened there or what allowed this to happen or why this can, you know, some people might say this is correlation, but why it might be correlation that we could, uh, take as a reason to believe that we could do this and it would be successful again. That's right. And I'm not saying that the absence of probation, you know, the drastic reduction in probation caused that reduction in crime. All I'm saying is when probation went away, it's almost as if no one noticed. It's why when I interviewed with a mayor who cared deeply about crime, he was barely able to pay attention to this potential new probation commissioner. It's just not, it, it made me wonder, all of this has made me wonder, how naked is the emperor? Uh, you know, how how little is probation and parole contributing to anything we care about? Um, uh, and how much is it just messing with people and locking them up for frivolous stuff? So yeah, the, the, the number of people on probation and parole plummeted. You know, the good thing about what was happening in New York City uh, during that time period, which is why I use it for as an example, is that the city was amping up supports for people under supervision. Um, they were amping up like the Fortune Society, Osborne Association, the Center for Court Innovation, the Vera Institute of Justice. New York has dozens of nonprofits who are set up to help people uh, in lieu of confinement. And the I, I, you know, I talked to my colleague, Mike Jacobson, about this. He's like, Vinny, the numbers don't match up. The number of people served by those nonprofits doesn't equal a massive decline in the number of people incarcerated. And Mike has actually calculated how much of the decline in incarceration in New York City could be accounted for by the, just a decline in crime. And he says it's 60 percent. But that means that 40 percent is unaccounted for. And I truly believe that all of those nonprofits coming in, and first of all, just providing help, but second of all, advocating with leaders like myself. Every time somebody wanted to start a piddly little program 
right? Common justice. For the first couple of years, Danielle Sered served a handful of kids. But in order to do that, she had to meet with the district attorney. She had to meet with the probation commissioner. She had to meet with all the judges. And when she was doing that, she was selling the notion that there are better ways to respond to even violent crime than incarcerating people and putting them on probation. And you multiply that over and over and over again by all these nonprofit organizations who are in there pushing for less incarceration and more help. And it had to have an impact on the leaders. So, you know, I don't think we should reduce probation and parole and dump the money into the ocean. I think we should reinvest it in communities, whether it's these established nonprofits or more grassroots neighborhood folks. I think that would pay big dividends. I think it would help build more informal supports and more community cohesion, the kind of stuff I had in my neighborhood growing up in Greenpoint. There weren't a lot of cops around. That was pre-mass supervision. And my mom let me go out when I was six years old till the lights came on because everybody on the block was my mother, right? What we did was we stopped doing that in the 70s and we jobbed that out to, to prisons, jails, police, probation and parole. And so what we got from that is what my colleague Bruce Western calls a thin brand of safety. We're safe as long as there's this cop on the corner. When his shift is over, we're in danger again. Whereas if you have a cohesive community where people are productively occupied, where people feel hope and feel like they are contributing to society the way people routinely feel in middle-class neighborhoods, then you have a thick brand of safety. Yeah, and I mean, you also mentioned that in Virginia, you know, and this sort of reminds me, in Michigan a couple of years ago when COVID happened, you know, our sex offender registry, it went dead for two years. Like nobody was for a court decision came down. No one was forced to register for two years and the sky didn't burn. You know, the, the sky didn't fall and nothing bad happened. And yet we went right back to it the minute we could, you know I mean? It's like the same thing in 95, you say Virginia basically just stopped doing post-prison parole supervision. Uh, you cite research from James Bonta that suggests that supervision has very little safety impact. And despite all these stories and all this history and all the whatever, uh, we seem, if anything, more committed to supervision than ever. You know, I mean, with the crime wave that's happened post-COVID, uh, with the tough on crime stuff happening all over the media, uh, why are we so committed to doubling and tripling down on what seemed to me and to anyone, if you really rationally look through, uh, failed ideas? <laughs> like, why are we... Is it the bureaucracies that are created? Is it the, you know, just, I, I don't know. Do you have a theory for why we 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 remain committed to such, to, to what seem like really bad ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think in part the the, the status quo just has a, a power that it's difficult to sort of overestimate. Um, this exists and therefore it must be good. Somebody must have thought this through. And so now am I going to change this thing and then, have something bad happen and look like I'm soft on crime. I mean, I had I've 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 lobbied when I was a probation commissioner, and then afterwards when I was at Columbia for substantial rollbacks in parole and probation. When I was commissioner of probation, we shortened probation lengths. When I was at Columbia, uh, we got the Less Is More Act passed with a, a bunch of really great community advocates, uh, which drastically reduced the technical violations to prison and uh, shortened parole terms. And and so that meant I had to have conversations with elected officials. And it was super clear that the 15 minutes I had those conversations were the first and last time over the decade that they would have ever talked about probation and parole. So they just weren't, they weren't really thinking about it. They weren't interested in it. And to the degree they were concerned about what I was talking about, it is can I be perceived as soft on crime if this goes away? So, you know, Willie Horton uh, uh, fear of that one person who does a bad thing, even though you're saving thousands of people from being treated unfairly and hundreds of millions of dollars. When we were lobbying uh, less is more, we calculated that it was over $600 million a year 
were being spent on parole violations in New York, and New York had more parole violations than any other, more people incarcerated for parole violations than any other state. And so what we were saying is, stop doing this. There's no connection to public safety. Capture the savings and put them into job programs and, and treatment and housing and education, things that could actually help a guy or a gal coming out of prison. And so they did pass less is more. The governor signed it two years ago uh, when I was commissioner at Rikers, uh, and it was fantastic. Hundreds of people were immediately let out because they had already exceeded the amount of time you could get, the maximum amount of time that you could get as a violation under less is more. And uh, unfortunately, that was 30 days, right? And uh, one man, Ibrahim Karim, had been there 29 days when the governor signed less is more. And so he didn't get released because he hadn't been there 30 days. Next day, he caught COVID. The day after that, he died. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, there's some real, real ramifications that is big and small. Deprivation of liberty, the terrible things that happen to people in prison, and just the feeling that you're constantly under the thumb of the government. Uh, it is, you know, over and over and over again, I've heard that from people under supervision. It's a, it's an intangible, and I don't think it's a government good. I think it's a, it's, it's a harmful aspect of government to, to have people unnecessarily controlled the way we do through mass supervision. And uh, I seem to remember there was, you know, and it may still be ongoing, another experiment in New, experiment in New York where they essentially got rid of uh, officers and just had people check in at kiosks and that that had just that had better impact than than uh, the traditional form am i wrong about that is that it oh, has, uh, it's it's pretty amazing like every way you look at this like so mike jacobson when he was uh a commissioner of probation under giuliani uh started these kiosks right and he said there's these low-risk people they sit in the office two and a half hours they get in trouble at work let's just have them stick their hands in this Computer, it looks like a you know ATM. It reads their fingerprints. They answer the same stupid five questions. They were answered if they waited two and a half hours to see a PO, and they go, right? Then Marty Horn, uh, who was in his career Secretary of Corrections for Pennsylvania, Executive Director of Parole for New York, Corrections Commissioner for New York, and Probation Commissioner for New York, when he took over, he saw the outcomes of this, expanded it dramatically so that more than half of people were answering to a kiosk and had Jim Austin study it. Uh, and it showed that the people answering to a kiosk did statistically significantly better in terms of recidivism and in terms of failing to appear than people who were answering to a person. I don't think it's because the person made them worse. I think it's because frustration at waiting for all that time and if you're low risk and you're sitting in a waiting room with guys that are high risk, maybe you're learning some stuff you shouldn't learn. I don't know exactly why it was, but it did better. Similarly, on the other end, lots every state allows intensive supervision, probation, and parole. We're going to put you on a caseload with small uh, caseloads, and you know, with a PO with small caseloads, and they're going to supervise you more closely because you're high risk. What the research on that shows, again, good randomized clinical studies show that people on more supervision do worse. They recidivate more, they get rearrested more frequently, and they get technically violated than people uh, on regular supervision. So more supervision makes you worse. No supervision makes you almost, that makes you better. Uh, when people have abolished for short periods of time, like Virginia did, uh, nothing seems to happen. So Marty Horn, you know, my predecessor at probation in New York City, the guy I succeeded, actually asked once when he was in between parole and probation, you know, in his career, wrote a paper saying that we should just abolish this uh, and, and just capture the money and give it to people as vouchers. You go buy your own drug treatment or housing or whatever. Uh, and if you get rearrested, we'll treat you like anybody else who gets rearrested. Um and he, he was interviewed about this by the New York Times. And one of the things he said was, if I took all of the parole officers in New York out on a cruise for six months 
Would anybody even notice? And then he said, he answered his own question, to spend the kind of money we're spending on parole, the answer damn well better be yes. And I don't think the answer is yes. I mean, me and my colleagues did a study of all 50 states over 40 years from 1980 to 1999, control for a whole bunch of factors, crime rates, racial disparities, the political leanings of a state, and found that when we were looking at the two core functions of probation and parole, does it reduce incarceration and does it make us safer? We found that it increases incarceration. Uh, the more people you put on probation and parole, the more people you end up incarcerating. And that probation had no connection to public safety. Parole actually made you worse, made your state worse. The more people you had on parole, the more violent crime you had the following year. So, you know, the conclusion was not just go scrap this thing all at once. The conclusion was, why don't you experiment with dramatically reducing it, getting rid of all these technical violations, and even for some populations, just eliminating it and using the savings to provide supports. Just see how it does. If what you care about is safety and what you care about is not superfluously incarcerating people, I'm betting that by giving communities these resources, they would do a hell of a lot better than my POs did driving into Brownsville from the suburbs. As you probably remember, I always ask if there are any criminal justice-related books that you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. Do you have any recent favorite books? You know, I read um, both Danielle Sered's book and, um, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on her name right now, um, Lenore Anderson's books. I thought both of them were excellent, and I'm, I'm panicked because you asked me this question, so I'm not remembering either of the names of those books, but I thought they were really terrific. I think uh, the Sered book is uh, uh, As We Reckon or something like that. It's right yep. back there. She was on the podcast to talk about it. I haven't talked to uh, to uh, about the other book yet, but I have seen it. I probably do need to read it. Lenore's book, it's really interesting because she talks about whether are we really doing this for victims the way we claim we are? And she has lots and lots of evidence in their names, in their names, uh, is the, is right? Are we really doing it in their names or are there other things going on here? There's lots of evidence that victims don't want mindless incarceration uh, and do want a more nuanced approach than what we generally meet out. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about your book? We've talked about it quite a bit, but, you know, is your opportunity to 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 push the book a little bit <laughs> a little bit more uh, no you know it's just to me it's it's uh it it's a hidden conversation part of the reason i wrote the book is because most people really are they're like bloomberg they just don't pay that much attention to probation and parole what's your favorite probation movie for example it just doesn't capture people's imagination the way prison does and yet it really is substantially contributing to imprisonment. And I think as advocates, researchers, philanthropists, members of the media, uh, we do well to pay more attention to this. And that's that's what I hope my book uh, contributes to. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked, but did not? And there's an opportunity for you to talk about anything really you want to talk about that I didn't get to. No, you, you know more than the average bear. You got it. You nailed it. I think we're good. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks so much for doing this again. Always good to talk to you. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Same here. Thanks a lot, Josh. And now my take. Supervision is absolutely the worst. I had a trail em, nail em, and jail em officer who would frequently call to ask where I was, even when I literally was at a therapy appointment that she had ordered for me to attend. When she had to replace my electronic monitor, she tied it way too tight. I said so, and she refused to change it, saying, it's supposed to hurt. It's punishment. Now, remember, I never had a disciplinary incident of any kind in prison and never got into trouble on supervision, but I was constantly harassed, and I am still 10 years later paying off the end of my supervision debt for the privilege of wearing a monitor for two years. I was not allowed to visit my parents. I was not allowed to talk to the highly successful, successful formerly incarcerated person who had mentored me since before I was incarcerated uh, after I was released. And all for what? 
We have had states that in essence shut supervision down and nothing bad happened. We need to get to the point where experience and data overwhelm bad faith, fear on crime posturing in this country. Thanks to Vinny for writing such an important and timely book. I hope you all will check it out. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or who have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your networks. Thanks to Andrew Stein for doing our sound engineering, to Ann Espo for helping with our transcripts, and to Alex Mayo for helping with our YouTube and website. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.